Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. We have a special interview today about a topic that I know is very important to all of you. It comes to raising our kids, raising our children here in America. Uh, Jennifer Brahani Wallace is a longtime uh, writer, contributor to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I worked with her at CBS News. She has a new book out called Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. She is the mother of three teenagers, and she's looking at the push among parents in recent decades to get their children to succeed. That has also produced a lot of anxiety, loneliness, and a feeling that life lacks meaning. Incredibly, we go in depth in the book and find out that it's the kids who don't worry about their basic needs, food, etc. Those from the top 25% of households when it comes to income that are two to six times more likely to suffer from substance abuse as well as depression and other issues. And she's talking about this achievement culture that has become huge in the 90s, 2000s, et cetera, and what we can do about it. If you're a parent or aspire to be a parent or you work in education or anything related to kids these days, I think you'll find this conversation uh, really interesting. We talk about the professionalized childhood that children in some cases are living under a tyranny of metrics, she calls it. Before we start, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcasts like this one, extra content on our audio stream, as well as on our members-only Instagram page. By joining Mo News Premium, it's also a way to support what we're doing here, independent journalism here at Mo News. You can get it for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual package. There's also a lifetime subscription option. You can check it all out over at mo.news slash premium. All right, let's start with today's conversation. I'm so happy to be welcoming uh, Jennifer Brahenny Wallace to the podcast. She's an award-winning journalist and author. I was lucky to be able to call her a colleague at CBS several years ago. We have two former CBS producers here. Uh, Jennifer, we've been dealing with some technical issues and was wondering how many producers does it take (laughs) to make this podcast happen? More than two. More than two. So far, two has been the charm. Uh, But I'm happy that we got this all working here. She has a new New York Times bestseller out called Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can All Do About It. She happens to be the mother of three teenagers. We were just talking before the podcast. And I have to say that reading this book uh, was illuminating and fascinating. Well, I I wish that I had read this book uh, when I was a much younger parent. It would have saved a lot of mistakes that I detail in the book. Um, and uh, I'm just very grateful that I had four years of researching and writing it before my oldest went into high school. So I am now in the college admissions process watching him apply to these colleges. And I've been able to center myself because of all of the research I've done and all the experts I've spoken to. You're the mom of three teenagers. You've been writing about modern family life, uh, parenting for more than a decade. It was a subject of the conversations we would have when you were coming on CBS several years back. You continue to make those appearances. I'm curious, you know, you, you've spent years here working on this book. What did you learn? What are some of the key takeaways that you hadn't already learned or, or realized in your you know, first uh, 10 plus years of parenting? So I would say the number one takeaway, and this is something that I would love for you and your wife to think about, is the number one intervention for any child in distress is to make sure the primary caregivers of that child, most likely the mother and father, that their well-being, their mental health, their support system is intact because a child's resilience rests on the resilience of the adults in that child's life. And adult resilience rests on the depth 
and support of our relationships. So it's not that parents in these sort of competitive, relatively affluent communities don't have friends. What I found is that parents often don't have the bandwidth and the time to invest in their friendships so that those friendships could be a source of support when needed. So it's, you know, we have this, this idea of putting the oxygen mask on first, you know, before you put the oxygen mask on your child. But actually, I'm talking about something even deeper than that. I'm talking about surrounding yourself with one or two or three friends who can see you struggling, who can see when you're gasping for air, and who will put the oxygen mask on for you. So that's a very different level of friendship that I think we need to start prioritizing again in our lives. Yeah, one thing you bring up in the book, and we'll rewind here to the larger achievement culture in a second, but while we're talking about friendships, the friendships are the first things to go. They're put on the back burner uh, by uh, parents. You have work, you have family, you have kids, you have home, you have all the things that you gotta be taken care of. Uh, And yet your survey data shows that a majority of parents essentially lose their friendships or, you know, don't connect with them like they would like to. Yes. And it doesn't, I'm not saying that you need to go out five nights a week with your friends. The research shows. Those days are gone. Those days are gone. (laughs) That is not the prescription here. Um, Research out of the Mayo Clinic, and it's been replicated in other studies, finds that what we need is intentional time, as little as one hour a week. It could be done via Zoom. If you're too stressed out, you know, you don't have the time to go out. It could be one hour a week on Zoom. The point here is to have someone in your life that you can be vulnerable to and to have a relationship that's sort of a two-way street, that they could be vulnerable to you. That is where we get our resilience. So let's back up here and talk about achievement culture. What is it? Where do you find it? And what has it done to this generation of kids? Yeah. So to be clear, this is not an anti-achievement or anti-ambitious book. I'm very ambitious. I get a lot of joy out of my ambition. So that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when, when achievement culture becomes toxic. And what I mean by that is when our achievements define our sense of self, when our worth gets tangled up in our achievements so that we're only as good as our next achievement, or only as good as our failures. And so too many of the students that I interviewed, and frankly, many of the adults that I interviewed as well, very much felt like their worth was tangled up in their achievements. And that really leads to a very up and down kind of life, to put it mildly. It sets us up for anxiety and depression, anxiety to feel like we need to keep up and depression when we inevitably fall back. And so, you know, what's most important for parents to know is that the pressures around achievement for our youth are coming from everywhere, from their peers in the classroom, from their peers' parents, from teachers, from coaches, from social media, from the larger cultural societal messages that they hear day in and day out. So what's more important today than maybe when you and I were growing up, certainly when I was growing up, is that today home really needs to be a haven from that pressure. And what I mean by that is home needs to be a place where these, where our children can come back and recover, where they know deep at their core that their value is not contingent on their performance, where they are enough as they are. 
And as parents, we need to be countercultural that way. You write here about our children living under a tyranny of metrics. Uh, and your focus here is kids who are growing up in upper middle class and upper class households. Uh, you address potential pushback here. Uh, you know, these are not kids that are worrying about their food or basic needs. And yet, they seem to be having some major issues here. Yeah. So, absolutely, these are children that the ones that I'm focusing on hail from the top 25% of household incomes, which means roughly about 130,000 combined income a year. And the reason I focused on these kids is because in 2019, two national policy reports, one by the National Academies of Sciences, one by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, found that these students in competitive public and private schools around the country were now an at-risk group, meaning that they were two to six times more likely to suffer from anxiety, clinical levels of anxiety, depression, and substance abuse disorder than the average American teen. So when you talk about the fact that they are getting their need for food and shelter met, that is true. But there is a fundamental need that is going unmet in this population of youth. And that is what I uncovered in the research. It is this unmet need to matter, to feel valued for who you are at your core, away from your achievements, away from your successes. So that is the need that is going unmet. So, you know, you mentioned a study here early on in the book uh, comparing impoverished kids in the inner city versus these kids from affluent neighborhoods, again, where their needs are met. And yet, and I found this really interesting, it was the environment of unrelenting pressure that no matter how much money your family had, that didn't necessarily equal happiness. No. In our country, we tend to believe, without really even questioning, the idea, the myth that wealth equals well-being, or at the very least, buffers against the kind of hardships that you talk about when you when we talk about kids living in poverty. You know, I am not certainly not pitting children in high achieving schools to children living in poverty. Those are two extremely different environments. Yeah. Um, and I certainly don't believe that you know, national funds should go towards helping the kids whose parents can afford therapy, schools that are well-resourced and can afford to buffer against these pressures. But what I'm doing in this book really is uncovering just this very counterintuitive idea that kids who have access to so much are buckling under the pressure. And, you know, I saw bits of it in my own home, I see it in my neighborhood. I see it in the schools that my children attend. These pressures that we're talking about are bigger than any one family, any one school, and any one community. Yeah. So as we speak here, I'm in Brooklyn. You're in Manhattan. Uh, we're you know in New York City here. But you you know spent years on this book. Talk to me about your process of information gathering, the surveys you conducted to really get a sense that this is not a, a Manhattan issue. This is a national issue. Exactly. So I wanted to make sure before I embarked on a book that this wasn't going to be a book about New York City or the East Coast or the West Coast. So with the help of researchers at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, I conducted a survey. And, you know, we, the researchers were saying we need a sample size of a thousand parents around the country to really be able to see patterns. But within a few days of submitting the survey out via a snowball effect, over 6,500 parents had filled it out. Um, and I was hearing from parents from Alaska, Washington State, Maine, Cleveland, Ohio, Jackson, Wyoming, 
And at the end of the survey, I asked parents if they'd be willing to be interviewed, either with their name attached or not, for the book, and hundreds of parents reached out. So over the next three years, I traveled before COVID, then I paused during COVID and I did Zooms, and then I got back on the road once I was double vaxxed and could get back into schools. And I really went in search of success stories. I wanted to know which kids were thriving despite the pressures. What, if anything, did they have in common? What was home life like? What was school like? What were their relationships like? And I found about 15, 14 or 15 things that these healthy achievers had in common, and I detail them in the book. But what it boils down to is this idea of mattering. These kids who were doing well despite the excessive pressures felt like they mattered for who they were deep at their core, away from their achievements, away from their successes. And these kids were also, importantly, depended on to add value back to their families, to their schools, to their communities. So this high level of feeling valued and adding value, it created a protective shield, almost like a buoy. These kids still felt you know, uh, defeated sometimes, they had setbacks, but they were able to be resilient and bounce back because they had this high level of mattering. You write about this tough middle ground that parents need to find between criticism and praise, between pressuring and not getting involved, and then sometimes pulling your kids back when they're propelling themselves, it seems like a very tricky dance. It yeah. seems like quite a high wire act. It does, but I'm, I'm here to tell you the sweet spot is a lot bigger than you think it is. When I asked the researchers, what are, you know, tonight, what could I do in my house to, to help reduce the pressure, but still, you know, have expectations with my kids. And I got a phrase that just has stuck with me, which is minimize criticism, prioritize affection. Meaning that, yes, as, as parents, we need to have standards, but we need to be careful about how we communicate those standards and expectations and feedback, criticism, so that we have to be very careful to separate the deed from the doer. So, for example, a, a parent who's frustrated that their child maybe isn't doing well in a class that they kind of should be, um, instead of focusing on a shiny outcome, what that parent can do is to help scaffold the child at home, give them a sense of the rules in your house about how work gets done. We do our homework when we get home after a short break. We do it on a clean desk. We do it without a phone on the desk so that we're not distracted, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, that was a really aha moment for me in the research was Stop focusing on the shiny outcomes and instead focus on how work gets done. Because if you put your energy there as a parent, you are setting them up for success. And I am here to tell you, as someone who's been doing this for four years with my kids, it does come when they know how to work well and efficiently, the results are good. Right. It's it's expressing, I mean, you're clearly disappointed in some outcome, but you don't want to create the feeling from their vantage point that they're identity that who they are is linked to uh, that particular grade, to that A. That's exactly right. I So there was a, a really wise mother that I interviewed for this book. I interviewed a lot of wise parents. And um, what she did to really make that explicit thinking visible to her kids is she... Um, whenever her kids would have a setback, you know, they were, they were motivated kids. So whenever they would have a setback or they wouldn't get the grade they wanted, she'd reach into her wallet and she'd pull out a $20 bill or whatever she had in her wallet. And she'd say to her kids, do you want this money? 
And they would say yes. And she'd say, okay, hang on. She'd wrinkle it up, dirty it on the floor, dunk it into a glass of water, and then hold up this dirty, wrinkled, soggy bill. And she would say, do you still want it? And they would say yes. And she said, like this $20 bill, your value doesn't change whether you get cut from the team, whether you feel wrinkled up and soggy inside, your value is your value no matter what. And that is a reminder that not only do our children need, but we adults caught in our own achievement culture need that reminding as well. And it's very hard to remind ourselves what we need are people around us, those one or two or three friends that know us for who we are deep inside and can remind us of our value even when we're feeling down. So I'm curious as to the recent history of this achievement culture. You know, we briefly mentioned, you know, being raised in in the 80s and the 90s when it didn't seem as prevalent. And I was raised in, you know, a middle class, upper middle class household in suburban Chicago, uh, went to, you know, very good public high school, went to GW. But I never felt and I, you know, I'll, I'll give my parents credit like, you know, my identity was tied to my grades. But I was also very self-motivating. I think my parents had to do the counter, which is pull me back from myself. Curious, though, you know, so I have boomer parents, right? This achievement culture, as you were kind of tracing this over the past couple decades, are there key points? Is this something that is specific to Gen X parents, to millennial parents? To How did this develop? So I wanted to know that too. So I, I interviewed economists and historians and sociologists, and there are a few threads that I sort of outline in the book, but the one that really, the story that really resonates with me, the narrative, was that when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, life was generally more affordable. Housing was more affordable. Healthcare was more affordable. Higher education was more affordable. Food was more affordable. So there was more slack in the system. Parents had faith back then that even with some wrong moves, their child would likely be able to replicate their own upbringing, if not do better than their own parents did. And that was sort of the American dream for generations. Modern parents today are seeing the first generation that is not doing as well as their parents. Our, our young people are saddled with debt. Real estate prices are through the roof. You know, everyday items like, like food are really expensive. So there is less slack in the system. The intensive parenting that we are seeing today, especially in the last 10 to 20 years, has paralleled this steep inequality that's been ushered in in our country, unlike we've ever seen. The parents are observing the, the crush of the middle class. They are feeling the hyper competition that is coming in with globalization. You know, we don't know what jobs will be available when our kids graduate college. What are we preparing them for? And so parents are absorbing these macroeconomic forces, and it's coming out in the way that we parent. We're, in the words of researchers, we're social conduits preparing our kids for this sort of fearful, uncertain future. Uh, this is not to, to leave parents off the hook. You know, just because we are feeling these feelings, we need to put them into context. I'm just so tired of the parent blaming because mm -hmm. these these forces are bigger than any individual family. Right. There's, I mean, there's legitimate concern, right? AI and all these technologies. And when you look at the numbers for, you know, even me as an elder millennial, like where my parents were at my age and what they could afford and what they could have versus now how much it costs to just have the same level of living. And so it totally makes sense that you're then projecting those concerns, those anxieties 
on your kids because you're like, listen, this world is a much tougher world than I grew up in. So buckle up and get those straight A's. Yeah. And I think for a lot of parents, the idea of getting your kid into a quote unquote good school is a kind of life vest in a sea of uncertainty. So you don't know what the future is going to be. Well, if you could just strap on a quote, good college, then hopefully that'll keep that kid afloat no matter what. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is too many of the kids that are feeling that life vest really more like a lead vest. And it's Mm -hmm. drowning too many of the kids that parents are trying to protect. So you're going through the process right now. You say you have a senior in high school who's going through the college application process. Given the lessons you learned here, uh, given all the research that you've taken in, especially with, with writing this book, how has that changed your approach to the college application process? So the first thing I did was we didn't talk about it until the spring of junior year. I just said, I, I am not devoting your high school years to this, to this one goal. I'm ambitious for you, but my ambition is a lot bigger than a college degree. I want you to have a full life. And so we started talking about it spring of junior year. But it wasn't really a debate whether your kid was going to go to college, right? No, although he has talked about potentially a gap year, which I think would be fabulous, but he hasn't decided that yet. Um, I think for the things he wants to do, he would have to go to college for those things. Um, And so I actually gave him, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about um, confronting grind culture and I talk about rejecting the premise and rejecting the premise is rejecting the idea that the path to a good life must be found through a good quote unquote good college. And so I had him read the section and we talked about the research and actually my husband and I spent an entire weekend kind of debating this and he has really come around. And if I can convince my husband of this, I can convince any reader. He has come around to the idea that, that the research just does not support that. Um, and so I have lots of research in that chapter talking about it's not whether you go to a prestigious school, a, a big university, a small private college. Those are not the things that lead to midlife happiness, career success, or financial success. So instead of focusing on where you go to college, in our house, we focus on how you go to college. What is the right campus and fit for you so that you can feel like a valued member of that community and you can add value? Because that's actually, there, there was this great Purdue study that found six factors that led to later life, happiness, well-being, and success. And it was, do you have a professor who knew you and took an interest in you? Did you have multi-semester projects where you could really employ what you learned in the classroom out into the real world. And really what it boiled down to was, did a student feel like they mattered? And was the student given the opportunity to add value? And so that's how we're talking about it in our house. It wasn't the U.S. news ranking. That is not allowed in my house. I will tell you, (laughs) I don't believe that there are many villains to this story. I think they're a villain. And we've seen in recent years the pushback. We're seeing it at the secondary level, we're seeing it at the law school level, we're seeing it at the medical school level, and I think we're seeing it at the undergrad level at this point. It's too late. It's so late. They've ruined so many family lives with this, with this magazine that if you look at what they use... As their metrics? You would be stunned, as was I. It is, they make it seem so scientific, and it's not. And so I would just, I, I outline it all in the book. I would ask every parent going through the process to actually see the data they are using, I think they'd be shocked. 
talking to Jennifer Wallace here about her new book, Never Enough, uh, talking here about college admissions, that your success in life, not connected to the prestige of the college, rather, whether you fit on that campus. Yeah. I mean, honestly, when I think about this and I zoom out even more, basically what I'm telling you as a parent and what I'm telling myself with my senior is invest in your child. Don't invest in the brand of a school because it is the child in that school. It is the child that will be getting the job, succeeding in the job, succeeding in building relationships. I mean, it's as parents, we've just become so desperate to protect our kids that we're a little bit caught in this foggy myth that, boy, wouldn't it be great if only I could get my kid into Harvard? Well, my husband and I went, in, went to Harvard, and I could tell you, it's not because of Harvard that I got anything in my life. I will be honest. It was a great experience, but it certainly did not bring me success. Harvard didn't write this book. Invest in your child. Yeah, I want to get back to the the challenge for parents, uh, that sometimes we think our role is to help fuel and support our kids' ambition. In this culture, you say sometimes kids need the opposite. They need adults to hold them back. And I find it so interesting, and maybe uh, these are unique examples to athletics, but you know, we see the glorification of King Richard, right, or Earl Woods in kind of pushing their children, and obviously Serena and Venus Williams and Tiger Woods, you know, excel in a certain way. And so, you know, there is that lesson that some people have taken away being like, if I just push my kids, the tiger mom example, I will get them over the finish line and get them to have successes they can't even imagine at this young age. I mean, just let's just quickly look at Tiger Woods. I mean, is that what you want for your child? Is that really what you want? I mean, what he has gone through, uh, the addiction issues, the never feeling like he's enough. I mean, anyway, that to me is the poster child of what happens when you do that. Alain de Bouton, I think is how you say his name, uh, is a philosopher in the UK. And he talks about how hyper successful people, that there's actually, um, that it's a pathology. And ever since I read that, and you look at the hyper successful among us, I don't know that you want that for your kids. I don't know that that's the life you really want for your kids. I think you have to dig deep and figure out what you really want. What are your values? What do you want for your kids? What are the values you want to pass on to them? How much control do you have? And I ask this as a as a soon to be you know father. I was thinking about the nature versus nurture. You know, to what extent is it important to you know put forth all these like give them piano lessons, to give them the opportunity to learn a language and travel with them, and you know put opportunities and potential hobbies in front of them, and yet at the same time, how much of it comes from them naturally? And then when should you be concerned? When do you uh, hold back? Again, speaking to this sort of high wire act that you play as a parent. Yeah, I mean, I a friend of mine did this great thing with her when her babies were really little. She would take them to a toy store or take them to the library. And she would put things around them, all different types, a ball, stuffed animal, you know, whatever it is that that was in the store. And she would see where they would naturally gravitate. And I thought that was such an interesting, intuitive idea as a parent. What she was doing was looking for what are their natural strengths and interests. And there's actually something, if you have older kids, that was really useful in my house. Um, There's something known as the VIA survey, V-I-A survey which was, it's a free survey online developed by Marty Seligman at Penn and Christopher Peterson at Michigan. Those are two of the leading researchers of positive psychology. And there's a quiz for parents and one for teens, and you can take it and they will help you identify your five core natural strengths. 
Is it humor? Is it empathy? Is it conscientiousness? And in our home, what was so helpful was to find out what those strengths were and to help my kids use them to both excel, but also to overcome obstacles. So I would say less focus. Yes, expose your kids to a bunch of stuff. Certainly don't get hung up on you know, wanting them to relive your life or something that you wish you had done. Really, parents have to do the work of exploring their own psychological addicts and how achievement was talked about in their own home and really come to terms with that. And I would recommend doing that early. Yeah, I I was going to say, you see a lot of generational trauma passed along, right? My parents did that to me, or I didn't get to do that. And now I'm giving you that opportunity. Why don't you appreciate it? That's exactly right. And that no good comes of that. So really, the, the, what I would say to you is do your own work around achievement. Think about, and I, I go through these exercises in the book. I mean, not exercises, but the experts that I spoke to, you know, there are some really good reflective questions that I think we could ask ourselves and we could start doing the work. Another thing you write about in the book is what you call intensive parenting. Explain what that is, examples of that. And, you know, what I found interesting in one of your chapters there is that the amount of time that you spend with your children doesn't necessarily, again, correlate to positive outcomes. Yes, exactly. That was a shocker to me. So um, intensive parenting is, you know, it's sort of what you see modern parents doing today. It's making sure that kids are excelling in their sports, making sure if they're, you know, struggling with something academically that you have the support lined up. It's signing them up for the piano lessons and then, remembering every day to have them practice, setting the timer. It's, you know, buying the cleats, remembering where the cleats are in time for practice. It's all of these things. And what the researchers who study intensive parenting describe is that modern parents are, it's not a a psychological issue. You know, people are always pointing to helicopter parents and how bad we are. It is really a sociological issue, meaning that parents are trying to weave individualized safety nets for each of their kids. They are trying to give them the academic skills, the extra, you know, the, the social skills, all of these skills that they think they will need for them to be successful in a future that has fewer and fewer guarantees and fewer and fewer social safety nets. So intensive parenting to me is a sociological response to a hyper individualistic country that tells you, you are on your own you will rise and fall on your own. And so what parents are doing is they are trying to have a safety net under their kids. How is that manifesting itself? You know, there's certainly, I've seen some of the data, I'm sure you've seen too, about Gen Z entering the workforce um, and questions about resiliency or being able to, you know, manage stresses and and that sort of thing. Uh, Because they're sort of the first generation here that is a product of this achievement culture. Yeah. And intensive parenting. So, um, you know, I, what, it, what is the byproduct? The byproduct is on the child feeling micromanaged, maybe feeling less confident in abilities, needing more feedback from a parent. But then from a parent perspective, it's, you know, wearing us out. Mothers and fathers are tired. This is not sustainable to be working full time, to be building these social safety nets for our kids, to be parenting so intensely. And so what's happening, and actually there was an interesting study that just came out of Harvard last month, a a survey that found that among teens, there was a real correlation between parent mental health issues and teens mental health issues. And, you know, when parents are, are needing to be everything for their children, these one person villages, 
it lowers our resilience and therefore we cannot be as resilient as we need to be to our kids. So it, it impacts negatively both our kids, but also our parents. It leads to that reset, the, the need to put the oxygen mask back on yourself first so you can ensure that uh, you can then take care of your kid. I would go even further. I would say parents need to have people in their life, one or two or three people who see you gasping for air, who know you're struggling and who will put that oxygen mask on for you. Which also requires vulnerability as a person to be able to admit that. Exactly. You need to be open up. And it, it's very hard, in, especially in high achieving communities, to crack the facade, to show what's really going on. And and what I feel so grateful about the survey that I did and the parents I talked to is they were so open with me. I did not think parents would be this open. Um, let me read you, if you want, a couple of things from my survey that sort of express this. So I asked them, I asked parents on a, these were the 6,500 parents that I surveyed. I asked them on a scale from one to four, how much they agreed or disagreed with the statement. I feel responsible for my children's achievement and success. 75% of parents agreed with that statement. And then I asked them, others think that my children's academic success is a reflection of my parenting. 83% of parents felt that way. So not only are we feeling responsible for our kids' success, we're also feeling judged by society if we're not raising successful kids under this very narrow uh, definition of success. It's a lot of pressure there, especially in these communities. Parents feeling the pressure, the parents putting the pressure on the kids, parents feeling like their kid's success is reflective of them. I think you had, di you had different numbers earlier in the book. One in four students said uh, they believe it's their achievements that matter most to their parents versus who they are. That's exactly right. And it's, it seems like this very unhealthy cycle. It is a very unhealthy cycle. As you were talking about that pressure and as I was thinking about vulnerability, one place you're not supposed to show vulnerability uh, is on Instagram. Uh, and it's interesting because I was thinking about social media, both in the context of the impact it's having on kids and then also the impact it's having on parents and want to know what, you know, your research here found when it comes to social media. So I think social media is certainly a magnifier of issues and it certainly can be an accelerant. So if you are a parent or a child who in the real world uh, is struggling with social comparison, is struggling with excessive envy, is struggling with low self-esteem, you can certainly exacerbate it by going on social media and using that as a tool to fuel your own vulnerabilities. But I don't think, and I really believe this to be true, and I've spoken with a lot of experts who believe this should be true, social media is not the root of the problem. And if we as parents take our eye off the ball and just focus on social media and say, that's the issue, just clear that up. I, I am fearful we will miss the bigger, more important, deeper story here. And that is this unmet need to feel valued for who we are at our core. I love the theme here of mattering. At the end of your book, by the way, you, you have a whole bunch of suggested uh, resources for parents, for educators, for the community, et cetera. Um, I wanna end with the idea of mattering here. How do you try to reinforce that to your children and what is your advice for everybody? I think mattering to me is the, is a key to solution to loneliness, anxiety, and depression. And what that means is at every turn as a parent to reinforce to our kids that they are valued for who they are deep inside. And then just as importantly, to find places in the world where they can add value at home, through chores, 
through helping out with the family matters uh, at school, making sure that they're engaged and really using their strengths to help their classmates and in the wider community, helping them identify genuine needs in the world and giving them the, the support they need to be able to add value to others. Really expanding the aperture there of metrics for success uh, and metrics for who you are as a human and uh, why you matter. And I think that's something we all deal with in our careers. I'm still dealing with it, separating myself and my identity from what I do. Jennifer Wallace, thank you for uh, the conversation, for the research here. And I know, congratulations, you have another book on the way, or at least you're in the beginning stages of it. Yes, baby steps. Baby steps for book number two. As we conclude here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcasts like this one, extra content and extra access to a members-only Instagram page. It's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, as well as get your questions about the news answered and deep dives into a whole variety of subjects. It's available right now for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual package. You can check it out right now over at mo.news slash premium. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon.